Hi there, I'm Deb Crow, and I want to welcome you to season four of Imperfect, the heart-centered leadership podcast. This is a podcast where we connect, learn, and laugh together with authentic and courageous leaders from all over the globe. You will learn from leaders you haven't even met yet. You will gain new tools to add to your leadership toolkit because leadership belongs to all of us. It is not measured by stature or title. So please pull up a chair and listen in. This is the Imperfect Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. So we are on season four already. I still can't believe it. We're doing video really out of my comfort zone. And I'm so excited because I have Glenn Parker back on the show. Glenn has been on with me in a previous season and he told me he wasn't going to write anymore. And he went ahead and wrote another book with his son, Michael. And Glenn, it's such an honor to have you back on the show today. I always love our conversations. So welcome. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to our, our conversation once again. It's always a joy. And I, I'm getting you on record because I'm going to be in New Jersey this summer. So I'm definitely stealing you for a lunch or dinner in Long Beach Island. And it's I know the conversation is going to be even better. And maybe there might even be yeah. a martini involved. You never I know. Think there's, I think that's a very distinct possibility. And you may get the designation of Jersey Girl if you know, certain things go right. There you go. Well, you know, I I spent some time there as a young girl and it's absolutely beautiful. And I have a family that I have a a longstanding relationship with. So again, it's, it's a big world, but at the same time, it's, it's quite small when you start realizing all the interconnectedness. So I want to, I want to just give a little bit of your bio because it's amazing Glenn, for those of you who haven't heard his previous episode, which we're also going to put in the podcast episode description because he's done so much and continues to do so much on a global level. But Glenn is an internationally recognized workshop facilitator. He's an organizational consultant. He is a conference speaker. He loves working with teams, collaborations. I asked him if the new book was number 17 that he's written, and he said he lost track. So you're going to get a glimpse of where this conversation is going to go today. Glenn is also one of the 75 management thinkers recognized in this book. And I could go on and on, but I'd rather you enjoy (laughs) an intellectual, stimulating conversation. So, Glenn, I'm going to dive into my leadership questions Congratulations on your new book, Positive Influence. And this is number two. And my first question is, you have always talked to me a lot about positive influence leaders. And you know, I love the alignment because heart-centered leadership is well within the framework of that. What is a positive influence leader? Well, Deb, let, let me let me answer this um, the way I like to answer it, which is by by telling a story. In this case, it happens to be one of my stories. And, and we, we like to use stories to illuminate uh, various aspects of leadership because we think it's a lot more impactful than saying uh, the five characteristics of a positive influence leader are, one, sets clear goals. No. Um, so let me tell you this story. This I'll take you way back. This is to my first job out of graduate school, actually my first professional job in my life. Um, And it's also my first performance appraisal, 
with my first boss, Larry. So I were in the meeting and it's going quite well. He thinks I've, I've done a good job. And um, we get to that point in the performance appraisal discussion. It's right on the form and I've prepared for this. And it says your development plan. You know, what are you going to do and uh, going forward in your career? So, uh, and by the way, I should say about my job, um, I was I was a researcher. So I would look up information and write reports that would be used by other people in the organization. So I, I looked up things and I wrote reports that I looked up more things and I wrote reports. You're getting the point. It's, it was fairly boring. So, um, but I noticed that across the hall, uh, the people who were doing leadership training were having a lot of fun. They say they were traveling all over, conducting workshops, coming back with stories about the workshops, about travel stories and all that. And I said to Larry, I think I'd like to try leadership training. Uh, could I, as for my development plan, could I sit in and observe a class just to see what it's like? So he said, that's funny, Glenn, because next week I'm going to be going down south and I'm going to be conducting a couple of workshops, um, and you can come with me. But there's just one thing. I can't justify your travel expenses unless you conduct some, you conduct the training. So at that point, my lips start to quiver, and I, I go, Larry, um, what could I teach? I don't, I don't know anything. He said, don't worry about it. We'll figure it out. And he did, and I did, and it went well. And I said, wow, this is what I want to do. So let me tell you what Larry did. Now, he could have said, which I can imagine other leaders saying, well, look, why don't you teach the two days? It's a fairly easy group. Uh, why don't you teach the two days? I'll sit in the back of the room, and then I'll give you feedback at end of the two days. No, he didn't do that. What he did is he gave me a two-hour unit that was scheduled for the afternoon of the second day. So the group had already been warmed up, and uh, even I couldn't screw this up. This was, this was made for me. And what, I, what I'm basically saying is he positioned me for success. He put me in a place, in a position to be successful at it. And that's one of the key characteristics of a positive influence leader, besides motivating people and being supportive and teaching them like what he taught me to do in, in, in conducting this little two-hour unit. They put you in a position to be successful, and that's a key characteristic. And I've, I didn't, by the way, I didn't realize what Larry had done at the time because, you know, I was, you know, uh, you know uh, like a 24-year-old schnook who didn't know, you know, which way was up. And so, uh, but I figured it out later on that he had done this. And so that was really impactful and it changed the direction, you know, of my life and my career. And I went on to do leadership development and then organization development and team development. But um, I, in, in many ways, I, I, I owe it all to him. So that kind of an uh, kind of an idea of what a positive influence leader there's other dimensions to it but gives you an idea of 
what they can do to help you be a successful person. I love that. And it it leads nice into my next question. So this question, you've, you've heard it before. It continues to have permanent residents on the show, especially after talking about positive influence leadership. What imperfections, because I haven't talked to you in a while, what imperfections are you bringing into your heart-centered leadership, which really is aligned with being a positive influence leader? Share with us your imperfections. Uh, impatience. Um, you know, for example, I'm impatient with this question. <laughs> no, no, I'm just kidding. No, um, I, because I, I want to get things done. And sometimes that leads to trying to do too much sure. and, and, and not being really good at time management and realizing that sometimes I need to sit back, uh, put my feet up and, 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 and frankly, and have that martini. And so, you know, I, I sometimes um, push myself um, too much. And fortunately, you know, um, my, my wife of many, many years will remind me of that. And she actually just did this recently. Um, I think about five minutes ago, actually. <laughs> so, um, but that that that's probably the the one that comes to mind, and that probably there would be some um, consensus on in my family. I love that. Okay, here's my third question: What did you find were the biggest challenges that leaders faced during the pandemic? And I know that's a big question, but yeah. if you could pick one or two yeah. and, and maybe share yeah. what you saw uh, on a on a bigger level globally. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, we we found six major challenges, and there were some that. And I, to to your point, I think you're right. There were a couple that were just a little bit greater challenges than others. Probably the number one, and if we had asked the people that we interviewed to rank them, they probably would have ranked the emotional toll on everyone as the major challenge that they, they faced personally as leaders and that the people in their organization uh, faced. There was just all this emotion coming out and a lack of uh, uh, just uncertainty and confusion and what do we do and how do we do it? We don't have a plan for this. Uh, we're getting conflicting information and the like. Um, and there was sort of this mental health aspect of it. Um, and by the way, I just wanted to, just to give you an idea of who we talked to, because we, we went for people, CEOs and other senior leaders in industries that we felt were most impacted by the the COVID-19 crisis. So we have a couple of uh, e CEOs from hospitals in hospitality, meaning restaurants and hotels, um, transportation. We interviewed the, the chief administrative office of Amtrak. Um, also real estate, because they got particularly, com I'm talking about commercial real estate, education, a couple of uh, school superintendents, and the like. So let me give you an idea, because I, I want to use some of the, the actual stories and, and quotes that um, people shared with us. So Mitch Rudin, who's a CEO of Seville's, which is a major 
commercial real estate company based in New York. He said to me, he said, Glenn, my biggest concern, my biggest concern was dealing with the mental health of our people while trying to maintain our positive, upbeat culture. And then, so the first thought was about their people, my the people in the organization. And then many of them sat to look at themselves and say, I, I'm feeling kind of stressed over this also. Um, at first, many of them held that within because they felt that people were looking to them to be strong and to be positive and to be um, know what they're doing and to have a plan for dealing with this. After a while, they just you know kind of let their hair down and said, hey, I'm feeling it also. I have a family. I'm worried. So uh, there was this just this impact on their people and, and on themselves. The other aspect of it was remote work. People were starting to and did work from home, particularly in those industries that could do it, commercial real estate being being one of them. Not every industry could do it, and certainly healthcare couldn't do it. Um, so what happened is that uh, um, the the day the the work at home, which everybody seemed to love initially, became stressful because the work day never ended. You up early in the morning, you were available. You couldn't say, gee, I'm not available. They, everybody knew where you were. You were home. And so they could get you and get you, um, and, and the day became very, very long. On top of that, who else was home? The children. The children are home from school, and you had um, many couples that had, that were, working couples that were both home and then their children were home. So when the workday seemed to end for them from their professional work, it started to really impact them, their, their, their family. And quite frankly, a lot of the, the pressure and the emotional toll was felt by the, by the wife, by the mother in the family because a lot of the responsibility seemed not every not in every situation but in many seemed to fall on them because the kids were trying to learn remotely and you know didn't know how to do it maybe the the they they didn't have high speed internet that was so great maybe they didn't have enough laptops in the house but and then there's all of a sudden you know you're you're trying to help them with their homework and you're looking this is not, I don't remember math being this, I don't remember this math. And suddenly I've got to help my children with something that I don't, uh, I, I, don't, I don't quite understand. And then there's the whole issue of, uh, are we going to lose our job? Are we going to be able to pay the bills? Uh, are we going to have enough of whatever we need during this time? So it was a lot going on and, 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 and that, that, that people were, we're focused on. <sighs> Let me take a breath because on top of all of this, if I can go on, because mm -hmm. really uh, this was some um, really stressful time. And it's funny because it seems to be, oh, that, that's all over now. Um, but we don't know that it's all over and may not return and return in other forms. 
On top of all of that, during this time in the States, you had the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and the emotional impact that that had. Now, people may say initially when they hear me say that, well, that was over there. That, that, that was a political issue. That was a social issue. No, no, no. That affected organizations because there were several hundred thousand people that were involved in protests during that time. And even if your employees weren't involved in any of those protests, they were feeling it. They were feeling the impact of it because it, it, it impacted a lot of people and ma many of the people were part of your workforce. So what did some leaders do? There were some interesting responses here to that. And let me just share a couple of those things, you know, with you and with, um, and with the people who are listening. For example, Eric Nordstrom, who was the CEO of Nordstrom uh, Department Store, uh, stores, um, he flew to Florida to meet with local police because one of the employees of Nordstrom's seemed to have been harassed by the police. And he flew down there to meet with the police, to meet with the employee, to meet with the other employees of that, uh, of that location of Nordstrom's. So he was right there and, and said, we're, we're backing you, we're supporting you. And the fact that a CEO would show up for something like that was a big statement. Another, Hans Vestberg, who's the CEO of Verizon, major uh, wireless carrier, um, he did a, uh, a Zoom meeting with all employees, all employees at least were, that were available, a lot of them. And he talked about saying this, meaning what was going on that I, what I just described with these murder, police murders um, is not acceptable in America, not acceptable in America that I know. And Deb, he started to cry. Now, I haven't seen CEOs cry in front of all hands meetings. Uh, and I, I've actually, someone told me that there, uh, who I interviewed, I interviewed a couple of board members of Verizon and they told me there's a video of that. I found the video and it's, it's, um, it's very dramatic and, and, um, but understandable. Different kind of approach. Jody McLean, who's a CEO of a, uh, also a, a commercial real estate company that runs and, um, uh, operates and manages and owns um, uh, a bunch of retail uh, shopping centers. She, what she did is she got a copy of Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail, and she sent it out to all employees, and she organized small groups of 10 employees with a facilitator to discuss not only the letter but what just what people were feeling so that you could unload some of this. So people weren't keeping this inside and spending a lot of time, you know, at work dealing with it. So uh, th there were some really, um, really creative responses there. Um, the other thing that was going on was the, as I kind of alluded to a little earlier, was the, a lot of, 
communication and a lot of information was flowing back and forth, but a lot of it was confusing and conflicting. And it was difficult for leaders to know exactly both how to make policy and plans, but also what to tell employees that they're doing. So some leaders took the position that I can't say anything until I know everything. I, the smart leaders got comfortable with, um, this is what I know as of the moment. Rob, Rob Zimmerman, who's a division director of NAES, which is a power plant company, and they certainly know about crisis, you know. And so he said, I, I, I really love this, what he said, you can't be paralyzed by the fear of giving the wrong answer. Can't be paralyzed by get the fear of giving the wrong answer. He said, we had to get comfortable with saying something like, this is what we know today. Recognizing that that answer may change tomorrow. So stay tuned. And we're being completely honest here because there's a lot of conflicting information that's going on and we don't know what is true because you've got a lot of health information that's coming down from all these different health organizations. Um, and you've also, people are on social media and they're listening to television and you've got these conspiracy theories and all kinds of crazy talk going on. Plus somebody, various rational communicators trying to break through all that stuff. You know, I I'll tell you why I love this, because the stories that you shared are the stories that I was hearing the first eight weeks from my clients. And that is why I started this podcast. Wow. Well, you know, I it was exactly what you just said. What do I tell my people? I'm afraid. Do I show my people I'm afraid? I don't have the answers. And I was like, <laughs> okay, well, let's just open the imperfect vault and let's now bring the heart-centered yeah. qualities into yeah. business acumen. And, you know, as I was listening to you talk, it makes me think of all of us in leadership understand VUCA. And it, it amazes me that we never had a plan to deal with it. Right. You know, I have a 96-year-old mother-in-law, and she said, I never thought I'd see this at the end or near the end of my life. Yeah. You know, you think about everything that that population has witnessed, survived, navigated, and yeah. these, these executives in C-suites they had to get comfortable not knowing what they didn't know when they're used to planning and leading and falling into structure and discipline and kind of where we were talking about before, that level of impatience really, really caused a lot of kind of dis-ease in themselves, yes. their own self-awareness and, and how they can lead these big organizations. So I love that you shared so many great examples and the cross- version of sectors, you know, further just talks about what I always say on this show. It doesn't matter what sector we're in. We're all in the people business, aren't we? Sure. Exactly. Yeah. But I, I love, you know, Glenn, you could be like a full-time storyteller with all the great stories 
just let alone not only your career, but what you've seen and witnessed and felt yourself through COVID with your clients. And it's it's truly phenomenal. So I'm I'm very happy you wrote another book. So my last leadership question is, uh, and I know this, so I'm not going to assume it because I do know, I know that not everything went well during COVID. So you've talked a little bit about what you've observed, conversations you've had, what you've learned. Tell us what was effective from what didn't go right. Tell us what was effective from what didn't go right. The things that weren't planned. Yeah. What happened is that um, communication ramped up and that uh, I, I guess I want to say not just communication, but a, a sort of personal communication where leaders got a, a lot closer to the people in their organization. For example, I talked about the fact that we, we interviewed the CEOs of a couple of hospitals. They were walking the floors of the hospital and saying to nurses and doctors and other and, and, and technicians, how are you doing? How are you feeling? What do you need? How can I help? Do you need some time off? Do you need to talk to somebody? Because just over there, we have the staff psychologist, staff psychiatrist, and we have the, 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 local, um, the, the, the local minister available for counseling. So, and this was a very important point that, and it seems obvious, but sometimes, you know, the obvious needs to be stated. Uh, not only say, how are you doing and what do you need and how can I help? But when they tell you, get back to them. And by the way, tell them when you can't do it. Like, uh, you you need more you, you need more respirators. We, we got supply. You're talking about supply chain. All of a sudden, supply chain is in our in our lexicon. We're talking about you know supply chain, just like we're we're talking about Zoom and something that we hadn't talked about before. And so, say yeah, I, I you know they got a whole bunch of um, uh, ventilators that they bought and it showed up and they they were they were defective and they paid a lot of money for them. So they were walking the floors. Uh, uh, the gentleman that I interviewed from Amtrak um, was walking the, the platforms of the trains and riding the trains and talk, you know, and saying to conductors, you gotta, you gotta you make some decisions on your own um, directly uh, on the trains. Cause we can't be there to answer every one of your uh, situation. So there was a, a community of caring that got got stepped up during this time. There was more of that, this this kind of personal um, personal communication that was a big part of it. Another issue was innovation, a lot more collaboration and innovation, in some ways forced into it because and a lot more empowerment during this time because there was a, not an opportunity for a lot of close supervision. Another example, Mike Axiotis, who's the CEO of a company in Pennsylvania that owns tw and operates 21 Red Robin restaurants. If you don't, people don't know what Red Robin is, it's a, uh, it's a family style restaurant. And what he said is that 
he first of all he was calling the general managers of all of them all all the time and speaking to them and saying how are you doing and what do you need and what can i do to help and he was also asking them what are they doing to deal with the reduction in the number of customers coming into the restaurant reducing the number of staff that they have supply chain issues where you know food's not arriving for for preparation uh, and what what was happening is that the the general managers he what he started to do was to have a zoom meeting of the 21 general managers to talk about what they were doing to address it uh, for example some of them uh, reduce the menu just to make it easier for the kitchen and doing things that they had they were able to prepare and to deliver to customers. Um, and so they were sharing these ideas that were working. And he said to me, Glenn, prior to this, the the 21 restaurants competed with each other. And he said, you know, kind of quite frankly, we sort of fostered that competition because it was a friendly c- competition to be who's who's number one, who's got the biggest sales, who has the best customer satisfaction ratings, et cetera, et cetera. But now we were sharing. So one, one, one general manager at his restaurant had a good idea. They were all, um, they were all getting the opportunity to use that idea. And he said, that's, we're not going back. We're, that's that's going to be our uh, operating procedure going forward. We're going to be more collaborative. And there was a lot more, this kind of collaboration, a very famous one, we talked to the CEO of the Javits Convention Center in New York City. Big, do big trade shows, 10, 15,000 people show up for these things. It's a fabulous place. And of course, you know, who's going to a trade show during COVID? Shut down. And the Army Corps of Engineers comes to them and says, Get, let's together build a field hospital be, to take the overflow from the New York City hospitals. And within a couple of weeks, they put together a 25-bed hospital within this convention center, and it required the collaboration between the craftspeople who worked at the convention center. I mean, you know, they know where the plumbing is, and they know where the outlets are, and the Army Corps of Engineers knows how to, you know, put up a building in a short period of time. And they worked together, and it was... I mean, they got all kinds of, you know, wonderful publicity for um, for things like that. So there was a lot more. And then people discovered, the leaders discovered that, you know, uh, their people were making the good, really good decisions on the spot without being told by their supervisors. And we, we suddenly realized we have some really smart people that work here and that, you know, empowerment didn't become a thing that got rolled out. It just kind of happened. And, you know, suddenly they discovered that. Leaders discovered that they didn't have to be involved in everything. And they didn't have to feel that they always had to be the smartest person in the room. Because as, as one of them said to me, you know, if I'm the smartest person in the room, I'm in the wrong room. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, I, during the, I'm going to say the middle of COVID, I remember I was coaching an epidemiologist and I asked him kind of what was a a moment that he really remembered. 
And he said when his supervisor came to him and he just said, how are you feeling? You know, the change of one word instead of what are you thinking? How are you thinking? How are you feeling? And he said, I broke down and cried. And he said it was the most vulnerable and honest conversation I'd had with him in five years. And yeah. and when you talked about, you know, the stories and the collaboration and the empowerment, you know, I think as human beings, again, the sector doesn't matter. We're people. Uh, when we need each other, we know what we have to do and what we want to do and what we need to do. And I think there's so much richness that has come out of COVID, especially in leadership, but even as all of us as individual human beings, regardless of where we live, because we truly are borderless, we were forced to use technology. Right. And I just, I love the the stories and, and, and all the different sectors that you did research for to write your book. And I know you have something special you want to tell our listeners about your book. So I'm going to let you tell them. Okay. I, can, I, let me, can I tell you a, a, just a couple of other stories before we get that? Because they're the CEO of one of the hospitals we, we interviewed said he walked out to the parking lot to go home one, one night, you know, mostly exhausted. And he sees one of the nurses and she's sitting in her car and he goes over and he realizes that she's, just tears are flowing down from her. And, you know, he says, roll, she rolled down the window and he said, what, what's going on? And she said, I don't know. She said, I don't know what to do. She said, I want to be here at work because I, I want to be with my colleagues and we have patients that need to be treated. But I'm scared to death of going home and bringing, bringing COVID home to my family. And my, my, my children and, and my, my parents. Uh, and it, it was just crazy, just, you know, this emotional thing that people were having to, to go through. And one of the things that people learned about themselves, these leaders learned, because we said to them, what did you learn about yourself? And they, they learned that I, I, many of them said, and I've got a, you know, a bunch of quotes here that we, we shared in the book. I, I took things too personally. What one of the one of the men, Dem, said, I, "I I ended up having a heart attack." He said because I, I I took things too personally and I swallowed everything because I didn't want people to see me being vulnerable. He said, "Now I learned that I've got to let it go and uh, and share things with other people, and we'll all kind of work together on this." By the way, I kept in touch with him and he's fine. Um, but, you know, we, we heard a lot of that kind of, I learned I, could, I learned a lot about myself by going through this stressful period. The other thing we, they learned is that they weren't ready. You know, you asked, I think you hinted a little earlier about what didn't go well. There was no playbook for this. And what worries me is that we didn't really do um, you know, a, a 9-11 commission to really study what happened, what went well, 
what what you and I would refer to as an after action review, where we sit down, a project's over, and we look at what went well, what didn't go well, uh, and what would we do different next time. And I, I asked, we asked, did you, did you do anything like that? Well, I did it kind of informally. It, it was so everybody wanted to get back to work that they didn't take the time to do that, and um, that that that's a shame. So. Um, I, I, you got me going here, Tim. So I, 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 I just wanted to, to share a lot of that. And so as far as the book is concerned, I do have, um, a, a nice offer for your, your people. Um, what I'm going to say is that, uh, the first, let's say five people that email me and I'll give you the email address, um, and say that they will buy a copy of this book, Leadership in a Time of Crisis, and gift it to a colleague or friend of theirs, uh, what we often refer to among positive influence leaders as paying it forward. So if they pay it forward to someone, I they if they just agree to do it, this is all on a trust level, I will... Um, send them a signed complimentary copy of the book. All they have to do is send me their mailing address, send it to Glenn, G-L-E-N-N, at thepositiveinfluenceleader.com. And I'm sure you'll put that in the show notes. But that's that's the website where you get a lot more information and a lot more and a lot of stories. A lot of people shared their own personal story with us. We have a lot of that in there. So it's your mailing address at Glenn, G-L-E-N-N, at thepositiveinfluenceleader.com. I will send you a signed copy of the book. And if you were be so kind as to buy a copy and and, and gift it to... Um, we, we will, and we will make sure we put that in the episode description below. And, and very kind of you. I would expect nothing less. You you are one of many people that I've interviewed that I I could sit and just talk all day and and let the clock just just keep going and and time doesn't pass and I'm just I'm honored to know you and I I thank you for sharing your brilliance and your expertise and I'm going to get you to to close out the show by finishing this sentence for me. Heart-centered leadership is uh leading with your heart <laughs> leading um, with your feelings um, and finding out what other people are feeling and what their needs are and helping them deal with those needs and also helping them to achieve their goals. I love it. Thanks so much, Glenn. Thanks so much for joining me today on Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. I hope you've enjoyed the show today and have learned some new tools for your leadership toolkit from our amazing Heart-Centered guest. If you like the show, feel free to give us a rating and a review, and we always welcome your feedback anytime. Looking to master the art of heart? Head over to our website at debcrow.com and watch out for Deb's new book, The Heart-Centered Leadership Playbook, coming in September. 